The novel coronavirus has brought the travel industry to its knees, its crash bringing the world of travel media along with it. And it would, as travel media is mostly an appendage of the travel industry itself. Case in point, the near-global paralysis of the travel industry has already resulted in the folding of some in-flight publications and the drying up of travel assignments and freelance opportunities. Travel writers across the globe are in a state of uncertainty about how they'll make ends meet, not just today when the need is the most urgent, but tomorrow when the dust settles. Travel bloggers who generate income through traffic, ad revenue, and affiliate marketing are also scrambling to protect themselves from the fallout. Yet, with at least a third of the world on coronavirus lockdown, bookstores are reporting a surge in online sales, and my inbox is alerting me daily to new articles and blog posts recommending the best travel books for the vicarious or armchair traveler. Even Travel Writing World couldn't resist the urge to publish an article. Surely, travel book authors are seeing spikes in their sales, but with the global economy each day coming closer and closer to a standstill, one can't help but wonder how long it will last. What will the post-coronavirus world look like for travel writing when we unlatch our bunker doors and survey the landscape? This was the question I asked a variety of writers in the travel writing space, including well-published journalists like Jason Wilson and Amar Grover, renowned travel bloggers like Tim Leffel and Nomadic Matt, and travel book authors like Tim Hannigan, Jonathan Chatwin, Rolf Potts, Manisha Rajesh, and Paul Theroux. Let's hear what they have to say in this roundup episode of Travel Writing World, an unusual format for unusual times. First up, we have Jason Wilson, writer and series editor for the Great American Travel Writing Series, and Amar Grover, features writer who's written for many of the world's top publications. Let's hear what they have to say about their challenges and the current state of magazine publishing. Jason Wilson. So uh, you are uh, the booze columnist, right? Adventurer and food writer and the series editor for the Best American Travel Writing. Many of the articles nominated to appear in your series, I, I think, come from traditional media publications, right? Um, and many of those stay afloat by kind of ad revenues more than anything. So do you think the pandemic and its fallout will have an effect on, you know, the future of those publications? And what might that mean for kind of the future of magazine feature writing in, in general? Well, I mean, the short answer is it's going in the next 60 to 90 days, it's going to radically change. It's we're, we're going to, you know, be nostalgic for what was two months ago. Because, I mean, it, from what I'm seeing, everything's falling apart. I mean, I, I belong to this study hall group and, and they, they're posting a Google Doc of magazines that are folding, laying off people and just not taking pitches, which mm -hmm. is always a bad sign. You know, that's not taking pitches is sort of the first step towards <laughs> maybe we won't be around. Um, and, and it's major magazines that this is happening to. I mean, just on a really basic level, like every airline has cut its airline magazine. So that's a lot of you know, there's a lot of freelance travel writers who kind of like make their bread and butter right. with those kind of magazines. I and that, Delta. that's just like Delta folded theirs recently or laid off some of their 
editors? Yeah. You know, Alaska has like no, no April or May issue. You know, mm. the Air Canada magazine's budget's frozen. The Southwest magazine is, is over. Um, you know, I've heard that, um, for instance, like some of the, like American or United or one of those is, is, um, you know, potentially going to not exist. Right. Atlas is another one that's under, you know, and then, but it's, it's also just like places that are not really taking pitches that are interesting too, like food and wine's not taking pitches, National Geographic's not taking pitches, you know, um, I'm not saying that those are necessarily going to go under, but you know, there's a lot of travel writers who kind of like make their living, you know, that those are the places that they kind of, they keep them in business. So, you know, I don't know. So, I mean, just like on a, like, like a real practical level, I mean, it's going to change. Um, I would guess also, for instance, I was talking with a writer this morning and she was saying like, what do you do if you ever, if, if everything you pitch is based on a press trip? Because I mean, right. there certainly hasn't been any press trips in the last 30 days and there probably won't be for a few months. If that, you know, who, who, who knows, you know? And so I don't know. I mean, I think it's like a pretty, it's a, it must be a pretty scary time. Well, it is a pretty scary time for, um, for travel writers, it's not a great time. Do we, did we, did we see any, um, I guess analogs or, or parallels between what's going on now and I, I don't know, 2001 and 2008 or, or, or are they similar? Or are they in some ways more severe now than they were? I remember when nine 11 happened, it, it was, I think the second or third year we were doing this collection. Mm-hmm. And I know there was a lot of sense that, Oh my God, travel was, irrevocably going to be changed. And certainly it was in many ways. I mean, you know, it's just based on like security and everything, but eventually some semblance of normal came back. Normalcy came back to, to, uh, to travel. I I don't know. I, I I don't, I don't think so with this. I think it's because then at that time, you know, magazines were robust. They, you know, ads, ad sales were great. And, you know, certainly the internet wasn't the thing that it is now. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, you know, social media didn't exist and, you know, the advertising dollars weren't siphoned away for that. So no, I don't think it's, I I don't, I don't think so. I think this is, this is probably like, unfortunately the extinction event for a lot of travel publishing. And that that doesn't mean that like a new travel publishing isn't going to, you know, follow within a, a, you know, months or in the next few years. But I, I think this is, this is it for like, this is it. The traditional way of doing travel publishing. Okay. From, from kind of like the feature writing, um, traditional public, uh, publishing magazine kind of media. Right. Um, because I, I think last I, I checked, um, some of the bookstores are re- reporting a surge in, um, kind of nonfiction and fiction, book sales. So there's like that kind of literary side to, to travel writing that might not be on life support as much as, as the magazines are. Um, and, and I wonder, and I wonder here, I was going to ask you like, so given the kind of current, current state of affairs, like how might one, I guess, reposition, um, themselves, uh, moving forward or how are, how are you doing this? Um, and how might someone else do this? <laughs> How am I? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm 
as a writer, I mean, I'm facing this just like everybody else is. So I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, from what I heard from my email from my agent the other day is, I mean, they're not, there's not a lot of books being bought right now either. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, you're right though. Probably, you know, it's not going to affect books, I guess as much, but it might affect the type of book that's being published for sure. I mean, it's going to, so I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to say. I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I don't think that like, you know, travel writing is going to go away. I don't think that like, you know, there's not going to be a type of travel feature or a type of travel book or whatever. I mean, I think they'll continue to exist, but I think, you know, a new model is going to have to kind of rise out of the ashes of this one. You know, as we're putting together the, the 2020, uh, the best American travel writing, I am, uh, you know, I have to write my forward and, this year, the forward has been so difficult to write because, you know, normally I'm reacting to something that's happened in, in a given year. I mean, this is like happening in real time. I feel like whatever I turn in, you know, in March or April it was, is going, you know, going to be just irrelevant by the time, you know, October rolls around right. because I just think it's going to what's happening in the world of travel writing is going to change so much in the next six months. It's, it's really, really impossible to say. And just for the listeners, um, when you reference October, that's when the book's going to be published. Yes. That's, that's when, that's when the best American travel writing comes out every year, usually early, early August or early October, excuse me. Right. Gosh, it's going to be interesting. Um, uh, you know, this time next year to see, you know, what, what kind of, um, articles will be nominated for, for next year's edition, you know, will, will there be, um, many to, from which to pick or, you know, will there be a scarcity of articles? I, I have thought about that. I mean, you know, a few people have joked to me like, oh, well next year it's going to be the best American, you know, COVID writing, you know, but it's like <laughs> what, you know, so, I mean, but I mean, a couple of years ago, or, you know, in, in 2016, 2017, there was, you know, a million articles about like travel in Trump land, you know, as well. So oh, wow. it's just what, what happens, right? I mean, you know, it's like all of the travel stories that year were like, let's go to flyover country and hear what people who like Donald Trump have to say, you know, like it was like, that was like the, the, the sort of like correspondent slash travel piece of that, those years, you know, so obviously there's going to be a lot of coronavirus stories mm -hmm. that we're going to have to wade through. And, but I think there's probably also going to be a lot of nostalgic stories as well that as the year goes on, you know, essays about, you know, like how travel was, or, you know, how, you know, people missing certain aspects of travel or, I don't know. I mean, who knows? There's probably lots of people right now, you know, sequestered at home under lockdown who, you know, are writing some, very, you know, poignant, nostalgic essays about travel they used to do. So mm -hmm. who knows? And maybe we'll see uh, an increase uh, of, of writing about home, right? Uh, local travel or, you know, traveling within one's country instead of, you know, international yeah, type I, travel pieces. I, to I totally agree with you. I think that because I think once everybody comes out of quarantine, you know, it's not like the travel ban's going to be list lifted immediately. I mean, it, who knows how long that's going to be. So, yeah, I mean, I think local travel, domestic travel, mm -hmm. I think for sure. I mean, the, definitely through the summer, I would think, you know. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, interesting times for sure. Thank you so much. And uh, we'd like to ha um, 
have you back formally in uh, October or there, thereabouts to, to talk about the new um, collection of essays if uh, you're willing and have the time. Would love to. Thanks. Yeah. Amar Grover. Um, how is the, the pandemic uh, and the shutdown impacting your writing so far? Uh, well, I'm a feature writer and I probably 90%, 95% of my um, commission writing uh, would be travel articles. Mm-hmm. And that is all basically suspended. That is completely suspended. Um, a certain amount of my work uh, would also be copywriting for tour operators. That is suspended as well. Uh, so for me personally, work has um, very much shut down. Uh, I've, I've got one uh, outstanding assignment to to file, uh, and ironically, that is that is actually a medical story uh, for uh, a UK magazine. Which, when I pitched the story a few weeks ago, uh, really before the pandemic struck. I envisaged returning returning to India, actually, to do a little bit of research for that story. Uh, and that, that would probably have necessitated a visit uh, in the autumn. Mm-hmm. I'm now wondering, really, whether I can try and make that story happen without, without my going back to India. Um, I, I, I think I probably ought to make it happen uh, before the autumn uh, and, and do some online research and, and perhaps more Skyping, uh, inter- Skyping interviews and and the like, and just get the story out. Um, but that's not a travel story. Um, I, I mean, travel is, travel is really taking a hammering, uh, as, as you know, and that's, that has a, an add-on uh, effect for, for writers who, who concentrate on travel. Earlier today, I spoke with um, travel writer and also um, series editor for the Best American Travel Writing. Um, And he noted that many of the in-flight travel magazines um, are are starting to fold. So the magazine for Delta um, kind of laid off its editors and Southwest as well. Yes, um, I that that's absolutely true. The first um, and actually, your 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 kind of that leads on to something I was going to say. So I did hear um, about a week ago that uh, Etihad Airlines, their in-flight magazine for uh, whom I have written, which I've written a couple of articles, uh, the March issue of that magazine is their last, and I'm I'm not entirely sure whether they've just decided to completely scrap the magazine or put it into suspended animation for three months. And what I heard anecdotally was that the magazine is being scrapped. Hmm. Which, um, for a relatively well-funded airline like Etihad, I mean, I, I think most people realize Etihad, um, which is, is based in the Gulf, the Persian Gulf, has, you know, they've got fairly deep pockets. Um, if they have decided to basically throw in the towel with, a, with an in-flight mag, that that, that sort of is a bit of a possibly a bellwether, really. For mm-hmm. That's probably one of the first things to go. They many of airlines kind of commission out the work of putting together those publications, and so that's a um, 
I don't know, an, an additional expense that they don't necessarily need. So unfortunately, uh, you know, for the for the business to operate. Um, so that, 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 that's right. So yeah. I, 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 I fear that um, uh, like them or, or, or loathe them, I think in flight magazines, you know, that is that is definitely a very um, useful um, outlet for for travel writers. Um, if they're starting to fade away, it, it, it does suggest that there's going to be a lot more to follow. And, and I, th- I think when we when we were um, ag- uh, talking about us having this little interview, you know, the main theme, of course, was what is um, the future of travel writing. And my thoughts on this are that actually the travel is the easy part. Um, when you're a travel writer, travel's always been the easy part. I mean. Anyone can go almost anywhere and you buy a ticket and, and you can go. Travel's a relatively easy part. What's always been the the bigger challenge uh, as a travel writer is the writing part. And I, I don't mean the actual physical act of writing, but getting it published. And what seems to be quite likely is that the whole media landscape is going to take such a hammering from this. And I don't just mean the travel media landscape. I mean... Um, General newspapers, uh, for whom many freelance writers, you know, a, a huge amount of their their revenue, their living, can be generating travel articles for uh, what um, in the UK we might call the broadsheets, you know, the big newspapers. Mm-hmm. If they're if they're suffering uh, and advertising revenues are going down, it's, it is definitely going to have a knock on effect. Right. The uh, the one one of the American. Travel Journalist Associations had a, sent out an email inviting members to a kind of conference call, so to speak, a video call in which they um, were encouraging some of their um, kind of writers who aren't writing currently to develop their stock photo um I guess catalog and and try you know getting into that space as a way to kind of diversify uh, their income, um, and it struck me as a very kind of astute thing to do uh, at this time. Although I don't know if any publications are uh, commissioning uh, uh, photos from these uh, agencies, but um, what what have you been doing, or what do you kind of suggest for? Uh, writers who aren't writing that much these days. What what should um, what do you recommend people do um, to prevent or prevent atrophy uh, setting in and the like? Um, well, I've been trying to find out whatever few uh, commissioning opportunities there are. Uh, there are various um, uh, travel media platforms or, or sort of writers platforms that that try and link. Um, editors uh with with writers mm-hmm. um, i wouldn't say an awful lot of that is actually travel related i mean and, and also some of these platforms uh they they're, they're linking uh, editors who are in search of, of many different articles not just travel obviously travel is one one component so i think um i think perhaps it's just harder than ever and i think writers will have to work harder than ever to seek out uh commissioning opportunities um i think they'll probably have to diversify Mm. uh, as well i mean travels it's never been a particularly um a particularly easy market to thrive in anyway uh, at the best of times you know it's always been um 
relatively few people uh, getting um, a, a decent slice of a relatively small pie. Um, it, it's often, often and long been perceived as, as quite glamorous, and you know the number of people that have said you know best job in the world kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that's true. What I'm trying to say is that travel's always been um, a slightly tricky field for, for a freelancer because it is so obviously appealing, and um, uh, there's just less work. There's there's a, a almost a, un, unviable um, amounts of, of of work that's that is um, can't really be shared with with so many people. So I think the only answer is for writers to diversify into other other areas of writing. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard to be optimistic in in, in bleak times, but do you see any um, opportunity, or do you see any optimism uh, moving forward? <laughs> well, I, I'm always a glass uh, half full uh, as opposed to half empty kind of person. So um, I'm a firm believer that something will emerge. There will be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but I, I was talking to um, I was talking to someone the other day who is involved in the travel business, actually runs a, a um, adventure travel firm, a mm. big company. UK based and he was saying that he can't see the travel industry actually returning to to, 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 to what we would normally think of as normal. He, he thinks that the new normal um, is going to be quite a different landscape um, and I suspect that might be the case with the media as well actually. I, I think um, what will happen um, there'll be a lot more um, a lot more stuff happening online. Hmm. Uh, that's already been happening, of course. But I think what what this crisis will do is is perhaps hasten that process of of more and more media going online, uh, and that's absolutely fine. But um, one sort of issue with with media online generally is that it, 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 the budgets to actually pay people don't seem to be there. So I think it'll. There's a strong chance that you know, the media, the, the media world, will be will be leaner uh, with with fewer people, actually, and um, there'll be less money. Mm-hmm. It's advertising. Um, in hindsight, this is what happened in 2008 with the Great Recession. Uh, there was a confluence of uh, forces here, right? The recession, but also with the rise of social media and online platforms that just beautifully, beautifully converged to shake up and, you know, cripple the traditional media uh, yes. environment. Um, I don't want to be a philosopher of doom, but I think I think most um, most people would, or most experts and, and most opinion concurs that actually what's happening now is 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 really far more serious than uh, the uh, the banking crisis in in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned um, something I'd like to pick up on you you mentioned um, writers possibly diversifying into photography mm-hmm. uh, and it's interesting you mentioned that uh, I, I, I also do photography I've got uh, images in a picture library and that's always been a useful um, extra little stream of income uh, and as a writer as well if you're selling travel articles editors generally love it if you can provide a package of words and pictures and, and pictures that are absolutely 
directly relevant to what you're what you're writing about. But um, the the picture world, the picture selling world uh, as, as well is appears to be one of diminishing returns. Um, uh, there's so much free imagery uh, available online now, um, partly because uh, of, of picture libraries. A lot of picture libraries have embraced different uh, models. Um, most famously, the sort of royalty-free model for imagery, where uh, you know really the only money to be made by any photographer is is, is bulk sales. So, um, by all means, I think writers should try and you know tap into their photography skills. And I'm sure many writers out there, travel writers out there, have an excellent stock of images. But I'd also say that um, to actually earn money from that imagery was probably easier 10 years ago than it is now. Hmm. And uh, do you track your images and their performance in terms of return? Yes, I, I, I do. Um, I have images with a, uh, a, a dedicated travel picture library. Um, they are what they uh, describe as a sort of um, rights managed library. So uh, what that means is that um, almost every picture sale is a uh, fee is negotiated, and of course, uh, it's in the picture library's interest to um, generate as high fees as possible. Um, but it's been a very noticeable decline in uh, quarterly uh, statements. Yeah, it, uh, and we get um, uh, all the members of this picture library. We get. Uh, sort of fairly regular newsletter updating us as to what, what's going on in the, 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 the travel picture library world and image sales. And, you know, it is a much more challenging environment hmm. generally. Do you have any other um, ideas of how one might be able to maybe not only diversify, but, you know, help prepare one for uh, another crisis moving forward you know crisis often breeds opportunity where might those opportunities lie well i mean for, for my speaking from my own um perspective i i, I suppose one question I'm, i've often been asked uh, over the years is um ever thought of writing a book and and to mm. be honest I've, I've never really thought that hard about writing a book i'm not sure that i've ever really had um a book in me and I've, I've always been a little bit a little bit unsure about travel travel books just not sure i've ever really had the right idea for a travel book but i'm now thinking that that perhaps i ought to um perhaps try and combine some of that that sort of travel writing background with um with fiction maybe with with, with teenage fiction hmm. and and, and maybe go down that road. Um, it's something I've vaguely thought of on and off for a couple of years. And I'm now sitting here in London thinking, well, if I really, if I don't do it in the next two or three months or four months or for however long this lockdown is going to last, if I don't do it now this year, I'm probably never going to do it. So I, I, I think that's, that's something that I will um, consider. Turn my um, yes, write a book. I have a note. Fiction, fiction and travel. <laughs> a blend of. 
I have a note here, and I'm not sure um, where I where I um, got this information, but on my notepad it says Waterstones uh, sales are up seventeen uh, percent, uh, children's education books up two hundred and thirty percent, fiction up thirty three percent, and four hundred percent week over week uh, earning. And I'm sure the American bookstores, the online bookstores, uh, the, the doers of evil, <laughs> are uh, yes. experiencing similar uh, increases, especially in, in fiction and, and those types of books. And it's not sure about travel guidebooks and those types of books, how, how, how they're faring. <laughs> I think travel, travel guidebooks are probably <laughs> finished by me. Yeah, but um, um, there, there might be uh, something there with the literary end of it or the fiction end of uh, you know the world of creativity and travel, so I think that's a good yes, good yes. idea. What I'm what I'm dreading though is that um, 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 it won't just be this podcast, but the general sort of situation will have inspired thousands of other would-be writers, uh, not all of them travel writers, to probably consider doing the same thing. So I, I, I expect that just as just as some people have predicted a, a sort of baby boom in you know roughly January or February next year. Um, there'll, there'll probably be a deluge of, of um, manuscripts, uh, brilliant ending up on the, the desks of uh, literary agents and, 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 and editors and publishers. But, um, you know, in the world of writing, I mean, the one thing, well, one of many things I haven't yet done, I've, I've never really turned my hand that, uh, at blogging. And I'm, I'm thinking there's, there's actually, like many travel writers, you know, we've got huge amounts of material. Um, packed away in our in our minds and brains, stuff that's never been published, and I'm I'm thinking may, maybe some of that needs to be unleashed as well, mm-hmm. um, because writing is writing is very therapeutic, and now we have an opportunity, if not a need actually, just to write to write stuff that we want to say. So we're not we're not being hemmed in by by an editor saying it's, it's got to be fifteen hundred words or. Or two thousand words. Now we can we can write what the hell we want and put it out there, and I think that's that's another. I think that's another thing that perhaps writers should be doing, and it, it's not something I've really done, but uh, I, I think now's the time to to crack on uh, because you know if, if if we're not writing, it's like um, it's like any other thing. You, you 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 sort of get stale, you get less supple, less agile, and you've got to you've got to you've got to keep doing it to keep the juices flowing. Next, we have Tim Leffel, writer and publisher of many online outlets like PerceptiveTravel.com and Matt Kepnis, also known as Nomadic Matt. Let's hear what insights they have about the state of travel blogging, ideas on how one might pivot during these times, and income diversification for writers and bloggers. Tim Leffel. So, Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Strange times. Um, I just wanted to jump into this and um, just ask you how the crisis has affected your various website businesses, your freelance writing. Um, how, how How's life? Yeah, in general, this is a tough time to be a travel writer of any kind. Uh, I have always been preaching income diversification, trying to convince people that they should have multiple streams of income. 
But even that is only of limited help if all of your streams are around travel. So, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm hurting in, um, in a lot of ways, too. I, I run a few different sites, so that helps. Uh, I think my worst one is off about two-thirds in terms of traffic, but that's a site that's all about hotels and nothing else. Oh. And, of course, nobody's reading about uh, staying at hotels right now because they can't book anything. And so that one's probably down the most. Some of the others are down maybe 40 or 50 percent, which is still terrible. But at least there is some traffic still there. There's still some ad income. Um, it hasn't completely fallen off a cliff. One thing that's helped is uh, as part of my diversification, I've always tried to cover some sort of tangential areas that are sort of related to travel but aren't exactly. So, for instance, on my Cheapest Destinations blog, I've always written about living abroad because I think those things are kind of um, tied together. Travel tends to lead to wanna, wanting to live somewhere else for a lot of people. Uh, and I've also just written about it from an economic standpoint in terms of shaving your monthly expenses by moving to a less expensive destination. That's one way to kind of get a handle on your finances and maybe um, get into a better place. So I'm continuing to cover that. And then on a, um, a site that I have that's about Latin America, I have always done tequila reviews and rum reviews and <laughs> other kinds of uh, things are that are related. Hits right about now. And those are getting quite <laughs> a lot of hits. So um, that's helped a bit to offset kind of the drop in travel. Uh, so it looks like I was really um, ahead of the curve there to do those things. But it was always kind of the plan to not be completely 100% tied into taking trips. Uh, I also cover real estate on that site too. So people that want to you know, buy a vacation home or retirement home or whatever. We cover uh, markets in Latin America where they might want to do that. So those stories are still getting some traction because people are still researching that kind of thing. But of course, there's no way getting around the fact that um, if you write about travel, this is just a tough period. And I feel for the people that are working on the front lines or were, you know, like the guides and the drivers and the waiters and right. hotel right. workers and all those people. So I feel like it could be worse. At least this is an online job I can do from my house and still have some income. The one other thing that's kind of saving me for the moment is I have books out, and uh, I think we talked about that a bit last time I was on here, but I have a book out about moving abroad. I've got one about travel writing, and then another one is about the cheapest places to travel, which is not a great subject right now, but again, people are buying books. They're doing research for the future, so I'm still seeing some sales on those. And I know you've interviewed a lot of um, narrative travel kind of writers, and I actually read Paul Theroux and his new one recently, The uh, Plane of Snakes. And um, I think those kind of books are probably still doing okay because that's armchair travel anyway. Mm -hmm. Last I uh, last I looked, I saw some of the bookstores reporting that their sales in nonfiction and literature and um, and hobbies, of course, uh, are are up. And um, I think Waterstones uh, reported their their book sales are up four hundred percent week over week. So wow, um, that's, that's good news. <laughs> I think the BBC reported on that one. So yeah, I mean those are going up. So it seems like having kind of a a, a book in in the stable as kind of one possible means of income might help in these types of situations. What, um, what, 
what might someone do? Uh, well, let me rephrase this. Um, just a few days ago, the NACHA, um, North American Travel Journalists Association, sent out a um, an email for um, a, a webinar. And in the webinar, they were uh, talking about posting photos on stock photo um, agencies in order to kind of, while everyone's at home, you can put put an edit poster, um, you can edit and put pictures on these websites in order to kind of sell, you know, and, and sell to magazines and other publications. And I don't know how well those are doing right now, but uh, it seemed like it's a good time to, while everyone is at home, to work on these projects that might help someone earn additional money. So apart from like maybe that, what might someone do to, I, I don't know, in the, in the downtime, what might somebody do to uh, buffer themselves against crises in the future? Uh, I did post a few things on my um, on my Travel Writing 2.0 blog. It's just TravelWriting2.com of some other things that people might want to consider looking at, both from a short term standpoint, a long term standpoint. But let's talk about the second part first. So, uh, yeah, any kind of deep work kind of thing uh, that you would normally have a tough time getting done because you can't set aside big blocks of time. This is a perfect time to take the um, opportunity and work on it. So a book is an obvious example. If you've started a book or you had an idea for a book and you just haven't been able to work on it, this will be a good time to do that. Um, Video is another one. I know a bunch of people, Mm -hmm. not just myself, have tons and tons of footage sitting on their hard drive that they haven't done anything with because, you know, the editing part is a whole lot harder than the shooting part. And so uh, this would be a good time to pull some of those out and put some things on YouTube because I'm sure people are watching a lot more videos and, you know, it's not going to make you rich, but it might put a few, uh, few bucks in your pocket anyway, over time, if you have enough followers to monetize it, even if you don't, it might drive some traffic to your site or help you sell, um, some product you have out or whatever. Um, Lead magnets is another one, you know, um, if anybody's not familiar with that term, basically, if you try to get people to sign up for your email list, you usually need to give them something. Uh, some people will call this an ethical bribe, or, <laughs> but uh, basically you give away a PDF report or a checklist or a cheat sheet or something that will be useful, a research report or whatever to to incentivize them to signing up for your email list. Well, again, that's another project that keeps getting put off and put off for a lot of people because um, it's not directly tied to revenue maybe, but it's something that will help you in the long term if it can help you build up your email list. Um, so you know, anyway, just yeah, long-term things like that, that you've been putting off. If you look at things that you've procrastinated over, you've probably got some, some ideas on there. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't thought about the video thing and, and um, you know, you're right in terms of, of taking the long view. I remember I put a, video back in 2008 or something i went to mexico I went actually to guanajuato and uh, zacatecas and places like that and i made a few videos and it just sat on on youtube and i received an email from gmail uh, from google saying that they're sending me a hundred dollar check <laughs> all right um, <laughs> I, I took it happily right but um you know it's it's about planting some seeds now that will later grow and, and bear fruit um, but you talk about this a lot, right, in in the Travel Writing 
2.0 book, right, about having multiple streams of income as a way to buffer against, you know, dips. Um, your approach is blogging, book writing. Um, what else do you have? Well, I also have a tour company, which is also not a, not a great business right now. <laughs> but uh, I have a where I live in Mexico. I have a company that does day tours, um, and that's never been a huge money maker for me. But it's something else, you know, that brings in some bucks here and there. Um, but you know, everything's on lockdown now, so that's not happening. But I also do some um, non travel uh, freelancing now and then. In the past, I've done ghostwriting on books, which is something else um, a lot of writers could do right now that maybe they haven't thought about it. Um, I've written non-travel articles that were in some area I had expertise over, whether it's, uh, you know, gear or living abroad or, or, you know, something else that was, I wasn't a total newbie at. I had at least some experience in. Uh, I just did one the other day. Um, for an editor for publication I'd written for before, I basically just reached out to them and said, anything you need right now. And I pitched them on one idea they didn't end up going for, but then we worked out another one where I was writing about companies that are doing something good in this time of crisis, you know, really helping out their community or helping out the country. And that's not something I'm an expert on, but I was able to just go get the research done and do it. And mm-hmm. so it was a little, little extra money coming in. And so as freelancers, I think even if you are typically just tied into one area as your expertise, you probably do have some skills that you can apply to different areas, whether that's even medical at this point, you know, maybe you're not an expert on anything medical, but you can go, you can go interview five people that are and put together a good article. So look at other opportunities that are out there. And some of them are even advertised online. If you go to, um, you know, any of these online job resources, you'll find a lot of gigs on there, not necessarily just long full-time jobs, but a lot of, um, you know, temporary project kind of work. So, uh, there are still lots and lots of writing jobs out there. They're just not in travel right now. <laughs> are you thinking about any uh, um, adding any other tricks to the hat in terms of streams of in- income? Or um, I, I, know, I know like certain aspects of the affiliate marketing um, are, are doing very well, um, and, and obviously travel and like credit cards are taking a hit. But in terms of like retail and products, um, you know, those are robust, I would say. Yeah. I I actually got a report yesterday from Commission Junction, which is one of the big affiliate networks. Mm -hmm. And it basically showed that everything was up except travel. (laughs) So, you know, it's, uh, I think finance was about even or maybe, you know, down slightly. Um, but there's probably aspects of finance that are doing terrible and aspects that are doing well. Uh, but you know, everything else, anything related to the home was up, you know, books, music, all this stuff. So yeah, if there's a way that you can pivot a little bit in what you're covering, um, on your own sites, that can make sense. Or if you can find out opportunities out there as a freelancer, to uh, write about other sub- subjects, you can probably find um, some willing editors out there. It's just, um, it's kind of like beating a dead horse, though. If you try to say, well, I'm a travel writer and I can only write about travel. Well, if there's not, none of that happening right now, it's not a good time to write about it. Um, it's just, you know, you got to by necessity find a way to get around that problem, at least in the short term. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what do you um, suspect will happen to the traditional and um, I guess the new media landscape when this is all said and done? 
I think we'll probably see a shakeout, which is inevitable, um, not just as not just among bloggers and writers, but I think we're going to see a shakeout in the industry as well. You know, we might not have as many airlines. We might not have as many hotels. You know, I, I think some of these tour companies are going to go belly up because they were already barely making it as it is. I mean, I think a lot of times travelers don't really realize how tight the margins are in a lot of these businesses. You know, you complain because you see a tour that's $5,000, but in reality, the tour company might only be making 500 off of that and the rest of it's going to cover expenses. So, um, it's going to be tough out there for a while. And a lot of these companies that don't have a cash cushion or aren't lean enough are just going to have to either file bankruptcy or just, you know, stop and lay off everybody for four months and hope that they can come back later. Mm. I was speaking with uh, Jason Wilson um, and you'd mentioned that some of the airline magazines have been already folding. So Delta airline magazine, in-flight magazine, Southwest, um, a couple of the other ones, which I guess makes sense, right? When the airlines see uh, crises, then they need to start, you know, cutting non-essential services. And as much as we like those magazines and like, I guess, writing for them, uh, they're not essential in terms of getting a person from A to B. Um, yeah, you kind of have to understand that these companies have to stop the bleeding any way they can. And um a lot of bloggers have been complaining because travel companies have cut their commissions to zero. So basically, if you send them a hotel booking or a car booking or whatever, you're going to make no money on it. You know, it's just a, it's like a voluntary thing, almost pro bono. But you can't blame them either. You know, it's it's like they they're bleeding so badly right now that they have to cut everything possible in order to survive. And so, yeah, I think a lot of print magazines are going to go under. I mean, they were already struggling as it, as it is, you know, they've got costs, they've got overhead that an online publication does not, they've got design people, they've got printing costs. They have a, you know, they have a masthead with a hundred people on it. Sometimes they've got people out there selling advertising. So, um, as bloggers, we're kind of fortunate in that sense that we can run very lean and mean. I mean, most travel blogs are one or two people and possibly they have a VA or two, a virtual assistant, but you know, we're already running very lean. And so, um, you just kind of have to hunker down for a while and it's not going to kill you. Whereas if you're a print magazine with 150 employees, it could very easily kill you in a hurry. Yeah. So, so do you predict here that um, traditional media, this is the you know, final nail in the coffin. And we will also witness the kind of the, the rise of <laughs> the new media landscape uh, fully, like bloggers just coming back in, in full force because they don't have that overhead and it's more of a labor of love. Um, or, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in the blogging question. Uh, like, what, what do you think is going to happen with that? Yeah, I think in the end, the the blogs will be left standing. A lot more of them will be left standing than the print publications just because of the overhead issue. Mm -hmm. I think that's okay. a huge one because, um, I mean, I'm, an ex I'm a good example because I'm living pretty lean. I've got a kid in college, but that's about it. Uh, otherwise, my expenses are pretty low because I live down in Mexico. And I could hang on for months and months and months if I had to uh, with – you know, the level of income I've got coming in. But if you're a print publication, you don't have that, that luxury. I think most bloggers, um, are, are going to be okay. I don't know what the percentages are, but the ones that aren't are 
people that are either are either living in a super expensive city already, like New York or San Francisco, mm-hmm. or they were nomadic and don't even have a home. Like that's pretty tough right now because if your life has been, I'm on the road constantly and I, I just live wherever my backpack is. Well, now you can't do that. You're stuck somewhere and you're going to be stuck somewhere probably for a while. Um, and it's tough because a lot of Bloggers have gotten used to living off of sponsorship kind of deals where they're working with a specific Mm. client and getting paid. Well, all of those have dried up or at least been postponed. And I know because I had a bunch of them myself, but the um, the companies can't pay right now, um, don't want to pay because they don't know what the future holds. And so they've backed off all those deals because they can't take the bookings anyway. If they're a destination, nobody can visit anyway. Um, if they're a hotel, nobody can book a room. So that's not going to turn around until we've gotten the all clear to go traveling again. Mm, the, the knell of the influencer. Yeah, it may be. Yeah. If you're an Instagram influencer and you've just been getting paid for posing in front of pretty backdrops, what happens if you can't go anywhere and nobody can visit? Nomadic Matt. A few weeks ago, you posted on Twitter that, um, you know, traffic on your websites have have gone down. Um, is, Is that... Do you see that trend uh, continuing and, uh, you know, what kind of short term and long long term impact do you think the coronavirus crisis will have on kind of travel writing in the blogging space? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't gone up. You know, I think what has happened with me has happened with everyone. I mean, we're still in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, so nobody is still traveling. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, that, that is going to be the same for months. You know, that, that's not going to change. Um, you know, I, I think this situation is going to last months. Uh, I don't think anybody is going to begin traveling until the summertime. And I think you're going to start to see a lot of domestic regional travel mm-hmm. before you start to see a lot of international travel. So do you think like the, um, travel writing space and the travel blogging space um, after this is all said and done will will kind of uh, expand domestically and then kind of slowly as borders begin to open kind of expand internationally I think starts to see more whether they're ba- no matter where they're based they'll focus on their backyard more than they will international travel US publications will probably talk about US Canada uh, Europe will talk about Europe Australia, Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. Especially as it's unsure what borders are doing. You know, I think the, the whole hop on a plane, go somewhere thing is going to be restricted for a while. Sure. And you don't, you don't see like um, the stay at home orders and reducing some of the outputs in terms of like what people are writing about, how frequently they're writing on their blogs. Um, you don't kind of anticipate a, downtick in publishing posts on their blogs about travel? I mean, if in the immediate, like right now, probably, I, I think you'll start to see, um, you, you'll see, well, not major publications, but maybe bloggers, you know, might have less to content to write about because mm-hmm. they're stuck at home. Uh, so that could be, uh, a downtick that you'll see. Um, 
you know, they might get more creative. I mean, we're focusing a lot on stories and and more evergreen content, books, music, uh, travel movies, that kind of thing, rather than what to do in Europe in the spring. You know, that kind of content isn't what people want. So you got to, you know, if you can bring, people want to escape, don't, you know, that's, that's still around. Um, but you know they want something that is time. Everyone always wants something that's timely. And I think what's timely right now is content that you know is a story. People want to read a story. A story doesn't need to be um, actionable. It just needs to be a story. Um, and, and just very briefly, um, I know you had to postpone uh, TravelCon to September, I believe. Um, uh, I was wondering if you can just uh, remind us what dates those have been postponed to and, um, you know, what one might kind of look forward to at TravelCon in, in September. Uh, it's September 18th through 20th. Uh, it will be the same thing, just different dates. So we've been able to move the schedule over without really – you know, keeping most of the speakers, keeping keeping really the itinerary, the parties, all that has been moved over. So okay, well, very good. Thank you uh, so much for coming back on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Our last group of authors: Tim Handigan, Jonathan Chatwin, Rolf Potts, Manisha Rajesh, and Paul Theroux share their insights on a variety of topics like guidebook writing, working from home, the difficulties in writing about China during the current state of affairs, and travel literature. Tim Hannigan. I've done guidebooks on India, Nepal, uh, Cambodia and Laos. I've covered China. Um, Where else? Myanmar, um, and I've a long time ago done a couple of bits and pieces on the UK as well, but mainly mainly South and Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. Okay, so um, how how do you foresee the current coronavirus crisis impacting the guidebook industry um, in like the short term and also long term? In in the short term, it's uh, it's a real crisis um it's uh i think it's you know for certain sections of publishing it's a it's a crisis more broadly but for mm-hmm. for guidebooks it, it it really is here and now and i think sadly there will be some guidebook publishers that won't make it through uh, the guidebook industry has been in some kind of crisis for about the last 20 years the sales went into went into free fall pretty pretty early in the digital area in the early 2000s and there's been a lot of a lot of messing around a lot of trying to work out how to reposition how to pivot brands into the digital market none of which uh, have proved particularly successful uh, and the the nice thing the positive thing in the last four or five years is actually the decline has slowed and there was even a little bit of an uptick mm. uh, in guidebook sales over the last few years so there was a sense that that we'd reached we'd reached bottom and and the bottom wasn't actually you know it wasn't right beyond the bottom of the barrel there was a kind of level that the industry was going to sort of plateau at and some kind of guidebook industry print guidebooks were going to endure so there's been a bit of a 
bit of a positive feeling the last few years. But at the same time, you know, the industry can take a horrible knock from even a really short term thing. Like, uh, you know, if there's a volcano that disrupts flights for a, for a while in Europe, that can mm. that can really have a have a serious impact. Um, and something like this, something that's global, but also total, total travel shutdown is is horrendous. Um, the publisher I, I regularly work for just delivered a guidebook for them uh, on one of their brands, and I was supposed to be starting work on a just a light desk-based update on another one. Um, and they told me n- not to do it for the time being because they have no idea how they're going to how they're going to continue. They've certainly put a halt on on all their on all their update cycles. So I think that we will see we'll see some of the the smaller guidebook publishers disappear altogether i'm sad to say and possibly even some of the bigger ones um it, it it'll be a very very rocky time because they're going to have zero cash flow mm-hmm. uh, for however long this goes on i read a um just a, a opinion piece on the telegraph a few days ago from the managing director of uh, brat travel guides um, kind of writing about uh, or appealing to readers to continue purchasing guidebooks to you know satiate wanderlust and to dream up future travel plans and um, and I think they're trying to 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 ride the wave of the increase or the uptick in purchasing nonfiction and fiction and educational books now that everyone is kind of on lockdown um, but it kind of doesn't bode well, I guess, if, if, if the director of a travel guidebook company is appealing for people to dry, to, to purchase more, uh, I think uh, they're, they're predicting for sure tough times uh, ahead. Yeah, uh, Brad have been have been quite uh, quite active in trying to get that message across, and mm-hmm. they've got they've got quite a, a good position to do that from because they are still a fully independent. Um, guidebook publisher they were part of that that wave of of backpacker publishers that all emerged in the 1970s um things from moon lonely planet Mm -hmm. rough guide and and all the rest of them now one of the one of the only ones that hasn't really developed into a into a big big corporate but is still going in its original form so they do they do have that kind of indie indie angle uh, and they do publish slightly offbeat guidebooks. They tend to focus on places that don't get mainstream coverage from the others. Uh, so they have a, a very small footprint, but quite a loyal following. And they can appeal to that support indie publisher line. So hopefully it will work for them. Um, and, and there are other guidebook publishers that might have some scope to be bought as uh, as vicarious wanderlust satiating tools <laughs> i think insight guides who i've done quite a bit of work for uh fit that bill quite nicely because they they have a format that's more essay based lots of nice pictures and chapters on different aspects of culture and, and history so you can buy an insight guide to wherever it might be india uh, just as a as a almost like a coffee table book with lots of nice pictures to to give you a sense of the country without going there. So they may they may have some leverage in that respect. But most guidebooks are really utility products. They're, right. they're things Service. that you pick up. Yeah, they're, they're things that you pick up in the airport. You know, you think, oh shoot, I didn't I didn't get a guidebook. So you grab the 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 Lonely Planet or the Rough Guide or the DK Guide or the Moon Handbook, whatever it might be, in the airport to 
wherever it is you're going. Um, and, and, and that's just, that's, that's just gone. Um, with the best will in the world, people are doing lots of reading at home, but if they're interested in travel, they're more likely now to order a, a travel narrative, a literary travel right. book than, than the latest Lonely Planet guide. It'd be interesting to see, um, you know, how the travel blogging kind of ecosystem will, will fare, uh, because they cater to a, a similar audience with, you know, their service articles. So it'll be interesting to, to see how that plays out. But you also have, um, I guess, a foot in the kind of academic world of, of travel writing. Um, do you have any insights from, from that sphere? It's it's a funny thing. Um, the academic the academic travel writing world, it, it, my impression has always been that it, it lags behind uh, and almost misses altogether the the hard practical economic realities of travel writing. <laughs> whether whether that's the whether that's the purely commercial side, the, the guidebooks, or the literary side. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the in the UK, certainly uh, for the last twenty years, what we might think of as literary travel writing, travel logs, books, books, narrative books about travel, narrative nonfiction books about travel. <laughs> Have, have been a, a, a struggling genre. Um, there's not that much of it commissioned. The advances have become very small. It doesn't get much review space. But there's virtually no reference to that fact in most of the most of the academic work on travel writing, including contemporary travel writing that's appeared in the last 20 years. You'll find books published in the last few years, academic books about travel writing, and they'll say things like, travel writing is a widely popular and successful genre. You speak to anyone in publishing um, or in <laughs> sort of literary travel writing, and they're all moaning about how they can't get books commissioned and they can't get books reviewed and they can't get books in the bookshop. So there's this, this disconnect between the 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 economic realities, the economics of travel writing, if you like, and academia. Um, so one thing I think that may may happen off the back of this, it's so obvious, it's so in your face that maybe the academic world will catch up and realize that 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 guidebooks in particular, but also also narrative travel writing is a commercial thing and, and they might notice that side of things. Um, I think I think in a way it, it the situation works in the other way that it potentially pushes travel writing practice into some of the areas that travel writing academia is interested on or has been interested in in recent years you know issues of mobility and immobility mm. um, and the issues of, of privilege and who travels and, and what travel means and the different kinds of travel uh which is certainly certainly things that that the academic the academic side has has been interested in and is engaged with so i think in a way in a way it might be it might be m- m- more the the travel writing practitioners and non-academic consumers of travel writing think more critically about some of these things what it, what it means to have that that ability to travel, um, mm-hmm. where, where privilege is involved in it. Suddenly, suddenly, well, none of us are mobile. Um, and there have always been an awful lot of people who have enforced immobility and we don't necessarily notice them. They, they sort of disappear in the discourse and they don't often get to speak. Um, so it might make everyone else reflect on, on the privilege of mobility. Right. Yeah, from the academic perspective, it'll be interesting to see what what gets churned out right from this uh, historical touch point. 
Um, you know, certainly uh, the academics will be writing about this uh, for for some time. Um, now, I'm, I, I got to ask you about this, and um, I was kind of poking around your website, and um, on, on Christmas Eve, you you posted an article on your blog that began with uh, "Travel writing is still dead." Right. I think it was like a, a ton in cheek um, away, but also like a comment on, on the market and the appetite for like British centric titles. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so what what do you think the coronavirus is going to do to do to this? Do you think it's going <laughs> to still be dead <laughs> or or, um, you know, because people are forced uh, to, to stay home more. Right. They're not going to go on airplanes. Maybe they'll be forced to see their own country, their own kind of domestic space more. Um, do you, do you, do you, do you think we'll see more, even more British centric uh, titles in the UK <laughs> or. Do you, do you know, no, do you know what, Jeremy? I, I think, I think the opposite. And actually that, that piece on my blog was, it was a, a kind of rundown of some of the, the new travel books that had been published in right. the UK uh, last year. And the remarkable thing is last year was a spectacularly good year for travel writing published in the UK. Um, some, some, some really good stuff from, from big names, veteran travel writers who, who appeared sort of 30 years ago and some newcomers. And a lot of them were still complaining about, oh, they weren't getting the attention, they weren't getting the reviews. But but some of them were were big books. They were amongst the most successful books of the year. Um, like Manisha Rajesh, who's a sort of younger travel writer in her mm-hmm. second book, her book um, Around the World Native Trains, got really great attention about 12 months ago. You had Robert McFarlane, um, who's a huge superstar of, of British of nature and travel writing. His book was, was covered with attention. And there were loads of others. So it seemed to me in the last year that the first signs of a resurgence of travel writing about places beyond Britain was on the way because mm. most of what's what's got attention over the last 15 to 20 years in the UK has been this domestic stuff, mostly nature and landscape focused. And Robert McFarlane would be a key figure in that. His early books were sort of the ones that almost single-handedly created that new nature writing scene. But his most recent one is thoroughly international. You know, he travels, he travels well beyond Britain in that. So I already had this sense that maybe the first signs of a resurgence were were starting to show and possibly that was a reaction to the political inward turn that we've had around mm-hmm. Brexit and sure. everything else. Um, so I I think that possibly uh, this situation that we find ourselves in might be good for that kind of travel writing, the narrative literary travel writing, uh, because people will have hopefully more interest in a world that they can't get to in person. One of the reasons for the decline of travel writing since the 1990s, it's often cited, I've never been entirely convinced by it, but there's probably something in it, is that as mass cheap air travel became more and more and more available, um, people had less desire to read about Colin Thubron traveling around China because they could go there themselves relatively cheaply. And now we're suddenly no longer able to, so perhaps there'll be more of a desire to read again about Colin Thubron traveling around China and possibly that will roll on when everything opens up again. The market, the market will keep responding and possibly commission and, and, and publish more 
more travel writing about places beyond beyond home. I, I think I, I think that is a potential and possibly quite likely outcome that it will it will start to push British travel writing and hopefully travel writing from all the other places beyond their beyond their own their own borders. Yeah, it's a pl- plausible hypothesis the uh, the decline of, of uh, travel literature consumption, uh, but. We'll let the uh, academics <laughs> uh, deal with that issue uh, down the line. Uh, uh, lastly, what, so got got response here. Like, how will this change? How will this change travel writing as a whole, uh, for better or, or worse? Will it decline? Will it suffer a crisis? Will it experience a resurgence? Like, what's going to happen? Uh, I think it, you need to split travel writing okay. into its two sections if you're going to answer that question. And, and commercial the, and literary. The commercial travel writing and the literary or narrative travel writing. Commercial travel writing, be that guidebooks, travel journalism, or the blogging scene, I think is Life support. In, in big trouble. Yeah. And I think, sadly, it, it could be the death knell for a lot of the traditional part of that commercial travel writing. Um, the guidebooks, having, having just about turned the corner or at least at least passed them the deer uh this has just hit them hit them for six sideways and, and i think it will will kill off quite a lot of the smaller guidebook publishers sadly and i think the bigger ones will be weakened when they return they'll be commissioning fewer and fewer updates uh, fewer and fewer boots on the ground mm-hmm. um uh, I think the blogging, the blogging scene, the kind of new, new version of the commercial travel writing, uh, that's very much driven by individuals. It's, it, it isn't this complex uh, interwoven economy. So I think that will resurge. Uh, but I think I think it's 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 bad times and a bleak future for the traditional side of commercial travel writing. I think for the more literary side, the narrative side, I I, I think it potentially raises interest in it amongst all the people stuck at home wanting to travel vicariously. Mm-hmm. So that will hopefully knock on into a, a stronger market for it when we're at the other side. But I think this period of enforced reflection, this period of, of you know, thinking about what mobility is, what mobility means, will push literary or narrative travel writing further into a decent kind of self-reflexivity a decent sort of looking at its looking at itself looking at the role of the author considering its own privilege i mean that's something that's been been belatedly emerging in recent years particularly with writers like kapka kasabova who's who's a fantastic um she's bulgarian kiwi lives in scotland now and has written some of the some of the best travel books of the last few years and she very much you know works on her own mobility or lack of mobility and on other people's i think i think we'll see that sort of stuff starting to starting to emerge in in mainstream travel writing more rapidly Mm -hmm. once everyone's allowed out of their bedrooms again can can you uh recommend a a few titles of, of her work yeah, she's she's just published um, last month a, a superb book called To the Lake, um, which is just just stunning. And and then a couple of years ago, she published one called Border, which is very very highly regarded. So she's originally originally from Bulgaria, as I said, moved to moved to New Zealand in her late teens, uh, various other places along the way, and then ended up ended up in Scotland. Uh, so Border was about the border regions of Bulgaria and Turkey and Greece. And at a very fraught time, the period of kind of 
refugee crisis in Europe. So it was exploring the issues and the identities and the voices around that area. And then to the lake, she's gone back to the same part of the world. She's on the on the border border area of Albania and Greece um, and looking at, at similar things, but also reflecting on her own identity, her own origins in that region. And she does it incredibly well. Um, I think she's uh, a, a very, very well-equipped and well-qualified travel writer for the 21st century and the absolute polar opposite to the posh white men who've dominated it for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of one of the the recent uh, issues of Grant. I think it was uh, Liza Griswold speaks about um, the act of looking, right? And she, she writes um, uh, something to the effect, I'm not going to quote this correctly, but she says the act of looking is always an act of, of self-regard. So, you know, hopefully, you know, th- th- this moment will, will in some ways, you know, pull people um give people the attention to to realize that the act of traveling and and writing about travel is also um a kind of an act of self discovery and, and maybe this isolation period or the the restriction of travel will will help them kind of internalize uh that i i hope so i hope so we we have to look for some kind of some kind of positive jonathan chatwin you know how how has this crisis impacted you in terms of your travel writing endeavors? Well, I write mainly on China, um, mm-hmm. and I had a strange experience with all of this in that just before Christmas, I was writing a chapter on a a city in in the middle of the mainland of China that most of my uh, friends and family had never heard of um, a city that now everybody knows the name of, um, which is Wuhan. Uh, and so it was very odd to see this place that I'd spent a good few months writing about. I travelled there last uh, summer amongst other other destinations in China um, to see this place that I, I had been working on um, suddenly pivoted into the into the into the global spotlight, mm. um, and uh, the project that I was, or I am working on, is uh, about chi- the China of, of the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, and is very much around um, th- that period of reform and opening up to the world, and some of its modern implications in terms of China's relationship with 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 the wider world. So, for me, the impact of all this has been for me to slightly press the pause button whilst mm-hmm. this plays out. Um, I think there's no doubt that whatever, however quickly this gets resolved, um, it will mark a new phase in um, the West's relationship with China. Um, and I already see that in the fact that I'm having, you know, for, for, for much of uh, the last 10 years when I've been writing about China, my um, friends, family, um, you know, have kind of indulged me occasionally in talking about it, but have shown very little interest really um, beyond sort of reading occasionally the things that I that I put out. Um, and now everybody has a, has an opinion on on China and uh, China's role in this current crisis. And I think until it all plays out and we see where um, that relationship is mm-hmm. next year, and see what the situation is um, kind of globally and, and within China itself, I feel a little bit reluctant to um, 
to kind of carry on full steam ahead with with the with the book that I was writing. And I think the other impact that it's had, and I imagine this is something that will chime with other people you're talking to, is it just um, makes what is already quite a difficult uh, undertaking, which is getting agents and publishers interested in mm. uh, book projects, all the more difficult because everybody's sort of waiting and seeing. I know a lot of book launches have been pushed back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does that mean everything everything then cascades back? You know, are, are commissioning editors now looking at a different, um, you know, roster of, of, of books they want to commission because of um, what's happened? So I think there's lots of unresolved questions there, which make commissioning editors probably quite wary of of, of going ahead and, and, and signing contracts on, on new projects. So I suspect it will be a bit of a period of hi- hiatus for, mm-hmm. for lots of people. Um, but yeah, certainly for somebody working on, on China and its relationship with the world, I think, um, yeah, I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm going to have to hold off before I uh, write anything definitive about that. Well, it seems, uh, two questions, um, come to mind immediately. One is, um, y- you know, if, if, if you're writing uh, a book project on, you know, a current event that is timely, that's getting a lot of attention, then I mean, the first question is why, why wouldn't, um, a publisher, be interested in something like that or alternatively why why are you putting the pause on something that is gaining so much uh, international attention yeah I, I mean i've got to say i think it's been interesting me watching the media coverage of mm-hmm. um the last couple of months uh, everybody overnight has become a, either a, a china expert or an epide- epidemiology expert <laughs> um certainly on twitter that seems to be the case and um i've i've desperately tried to restrain myself and, and sort of hang back and mm-hmm. i think the i'm not really i'm not a journalist so, so I, I tend to like to write about stories once once the narrative is is kind of complete in a way um and i think at the moment we're all um in a state of just discombobulation trying to figure out really uh, wh- where where this all lands in six month years time i think well you know for me for, for, to step stepping back from china a little bit it's interesting um that very often the kind of great periods of uh, travel writing have come after periods of, of confinement and, and restriction on, on travel and, and particularly the sort of inter, interwar period. Mm. Um, and I w- I'll be very interested to see how more broadly um, uh, the genre that is, I think, already started to come back a little bit from where it was. I think f- f- for a long time, travel writing had sort of, could have kind of been sidelined. Um, and people talk about, you know, nature writing being, having replaced it. But to me, they're kind of pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. genre um so i you know you could already see that, that that this was a um a mode of writing that was becoming was coming back you know after a sort of peak in the 70s and 80s i suppose um and i think you know it'll be interesting to see whether that whether that trend continues now mm. uh, after after these restrictions are lifted a bit and just out of curiosity when uh, when you're in wuhan did you happen to visit ground zero of the chinese virus and i, and I say that uh jokingly i mean did you did you visit the the wet market and no no i didn't i didn't go um i'm not i'm not patient zero uh, <laughs> I, I don't think okay. um i i mean i was there in the summer um and uh yeah sort of for for, for a decent stint of time but mm-hmm. um the wet market thing is interesting it, it it frustrates me, and I, I've been periods, as I say, when I've watched this conversation mm-hmm. go on online about 
about the origins of the virus. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Help us. Well, yeah, I mean, the the, the trouble is that, that writing on China, uh, you know, a lot, a, bear in mind for a long time has been that um, writing on China tends to tell a single story, whether that story is of um, political oppression, um, economic uh, success, economic threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, pollution, you know, military these, aggression. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. They tend to be, well, uniformly negative. Um, and um, the, the media tend to fixate on one story for large swathes of time, you know, so one narrative will dominate the media portrayal of China for, for six months, nine months a year. Um, and that's always been problematic in a country uh, of one and a half billion people. Uh, it becomes, you know, the reporting becomes incredibly reductive. I mean, there's excellent journalism done on China, but I think it's more to do with editors back in America and, and Europe who tend to commission um, those sorts of pieces. Sensational and, pieces to get clicks and yeah. generate attention, statistics, yeah. Yeah, and that conform to a sort of preconceived idea that, that mm-hmm. readers have of, of the place, I think, as well. Um, so the frustration with the with the the story of where does this virus come from is is that we're back to a, a position of othering China, mm-hmm. uh, the and, exoticism you know, of their cuisine and their cultural so practices and things. Yeah, yeah, and and, Ch- and China is a threat, and the Chinese is a threat. You know, the so-called yellow peril it has a very long history, and mm-hmm. this is nothing new. Um, and uh, you know, the, the reality is that those wet markets. Are, are just markets for buying on the whole ordinary meat and fish. You know, it's a place you go. And I, I, when I lived in, in China, I would, you know, there was one just down the road from me and I would, I would buy food from there quite, quite regularly. Um, I, I've only ever seen uh, once or twice in, you know, years of traveling all over the country, markets selling the sorts of um, animals we're being told the Chinese <laughs> regularly consume. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, so, so this is a, a dangerous mode of representation. And uh, um, it's also getting into something which I think is very destructive, which is a, a blame game, um, right, right. which which has the, you know, in terms of our conversation about travel and travel writing, has the knock-on effect of, of borders hardening. Um, and of course, one of the other reasons that my China project becomes more, more challenging now is because China's uh, refusing access to, even even though I have a valid visa, I can't, I can't get in at the moment, even if I wanted to. Mm. So... In terms of, um, I guess this is the short term, how do you foresee the corona crisis impacting uh, the future in the long term of, of travel writing, uh, literary travel travel writing or historical based travel writing? Well, as I say, I hope it it, it becomes a, 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 a force for good. I think that at times like this, people tend to, the wider reading public tend to um, embrace uh, the vicarious means of travel that they're denied in reality, mm-hmm. and, and that means you know reading travel books, uh, and you know those travel books can offer either escapism of a of a sort of pleasant sort, and you know you think about um, books like you know Peter Mail's A Year in Provence, those sorts of um, gentle, very very successful uh, travel books of the of the eighties and nineties, um, and or, or can offer the the experience. I mean. I, Probably my favourite travel book, um, if 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 you want to define it as that, is uh, the worst journey in the world. Absolutely, Cherry Garrard's account of the Scott expedition um, to the Antarctic. Mm. Uh, um, 
And, you know, one of the reasons I love reading that at times where, where, where things are difficult is because it's a book about the human spirit and resilience and, and the ability to overcome enormous hardship. Um, so sometimes we read uh, travel literature in a sort of cathartic way to, to look at somebody else's experience of of the world and 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 be reassured that maybe as is isn't as bad as we we'd thought um and I, I was thinking about this in particular in in reference to that as i said that period that interwar period which saw uh, between the first and the second world war which saw so many uh, great works of travel literature undertaken and, and lots of great travel journeys as well and uh, i was i was looking at Paul Fussell's um, abroad. Ab- abroad, yeah. And I thought I'd just re- read this short section about uh, the restrictions of, of, of the First World Excellent. W- War. Um, it talks about, obviously, that, that as soon as the First World War started, there were huge restrictions on uh, travel, unless you were a soldier traveling to the, to the front. Um, and as, as it says uh, here, um, Civilians were fixed in the British Isles for the duration. That meant four years, three months, and seven days of no travelling. And although, of course, not as nasty as life at the front, life at home was as constricted and unpleasant as regulations could make it, with a scarcity of all desirable things like meat, sugar, beer, and spirits. Food was so precious that throwing rice at weddings was prohibited. By the winter of 1917, coal was tightly rationed and most people were cold all the time. Museums were closed down, newspapers were smaller. The food ministry came up with the slogan, eat slowly, you will need less food. If travel abroad was virtually prohibited, even domestic travel was limited. Trains were often cancelled and the few civilians who managed to squeeze aboard were lectured by placards reading, unnecessary travelling uses coal required to heat your homes. And that gives a sense uh, you know, of a, of a much longer period of restriction and, and you know, out of that hardship and that period of course you get the great literary flowering of modernism mm-hmm. um, more generally and, and then this this um golden age of travel writing particularly in the 1930s um both in europe and, and asia uh, with european writers uh, traveling a- abroad and so i sort of I, I hope that perhaps um and uh, you know a consequence of all this you know awful period that we're living through will be that that we see something similar happen once again, and people people uh, appreciate the value both of travel and uh, travel literature. Um, and I, I think the the other thing I would just say is I hope it forces a reassessment of travel, the purpose of travel more broadly. And I think mm. we we we've seen you know the 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 pictures of Venice and the water clear there for the first time in however many you know decades um, tells us I think that. Travel has become a pretty destructive force in the world now, um, and perhaps when we do return to travelling, it will be with a with a slightly greater conscience about that, um, and perhaps we'll we'll travel in a more modest way, um, having all got used to our daily walks round. I don't know whether this is the case in the States, but we're mandated a one hour uh, constitutional walk around our neighbourhood here in in the UK, um, and so we're all getting you know growing to appreciate the the little bit of nature and travel on our doorstep. Mm, interesting. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about before chatting with you today was the degree to which, um, you know, we assume that travel writing is predicated on travel and making a journey, which of course is an essential, you can't write a travel book very easily without 
without going on a journey, although there are examples of, you know, journey around my room, for example, being one of them, uh, of people taking very limited journeys. Um, But I think what's interesting, you know, my work on uh, Bruce Chatwin, who would have hated this? I mean, he was, he he was, he hated being stuck in in one place, and I think he would have really struggled with uh, with lockdown. But he he was. Uh, I, I remember when I was writing my book about him, and um, one of the frustrations that his his widow Elizabeth had with the way that he was written about was as if his life was. And this is true of a lot of travel writers; they get portrayed as having these lives of, you know, jetting off constantly on the move um these sort of nomadic uh romantic nomadic figures um and she always said you know he, he had to spend an enormous amount of time sitting at, at you know at his desk mm-hmm. writing these books and and that's true of all great travel books is they are as much the product of the hours sat in a in a quiet room as they are of the journey itself um and you know there's there's countless exact examples of, of this the song lines being a, a good one for, for chatwin in that he wrote that whilst very ill or wrote portions of it when he was very ill um and you know although the book gives the impression of it sort of being written whilst he's in situ in australia it was crafted at his kitchen table as he was sort of shivering and wrapped in blankets f- from the fever that he was experiencing um but you know other other examples come to mind like patrick leifermo's um you know tr- unfinished trilogy which which is a, a book about a journey that he took in 1933 but he doesn't start writing it well it doesn't get published uh, the first volume i think is 1977 so this is a and and the, the final volume was never published and he spent, you know, the next thirty odd years refining his memory of that journey. Um, and I suppose that speaks to what the act of travel writing is. It's as much an act of of memory mm. as it is of physical movement. So there's no reason why, there sh- you know, there should there should be some great works of travel literature being written right now. Uh, you know, people dig out their notebooks and dig out their photographs of journeys they took last year, five years ago, ten years ago. You know, and the, they can. It's as much an in, about the inward journey as it is about mm-hmm. uh, the physical journey. In some parts, just as much uh, about fabrication and. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing with with. with Paddy Lee, Lee Fermo's book, um, which you know the the, the, the first two, um, well they're, they're all wonderful. The third is obviously un- unfinished, but um, you do start to to, to wonder. Um, well, I don't think you need to wonder really. I mean, he he, he did the journey in 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 thirty three. I think I'm right in saying, uh, and then there's a forty forty year gap. Um, that is not going to be the most reliable account. Um, and the same with Chat Chatwin, of course. His, he he was notorious for. Um, for well as i think francis windham said it wasn't a half truth that he told but a truth and a half <laughs> uh, which is quite a nice way of of putting it um but yeah uh, so i think i think um that would be my you know if if i wasn't working on something quite as uh, pertinent to the current situation i think that would be my um endeavor would be to try and dig out some some of those old journeys and start thinking about um revisiting those places in in memory at a time where I can't I can't do it physically. Mm-hmm. It'll also be interesting to see what kind of domestic or kind of nas- national travel um, you know emphasis comes out of this uh, due to the closed international borders and people paying more attention to you know their home. I, I'm reminded yeah. of like uh, the George Perec um, 
um, book about, gosh, what is it? it's called an attempt at exhausting a place. So he sits at a square mm-hmm. in Paris and just kind of, uh, you know, writes just about what he, he sees at that one spot. So it's kind of a different take on, on travel and, and voyage. So it'd be interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know when, I don't remember when that was published. I think maybe in the eighties or, or in the seventies. Um, yeah, he was, and that was all part of the sort of Aleppo movement wasn't it Perek I think was was uh, kind of interested in that how do you stretch a, a form to provoke right. you to, to think creatively about a, uh, an experience or a place um, yeah I mean I, I think what you'd, you'd already seen a bit of a narrowing of um, of geographical focus for, for a number of different reasons I think partly a slight queasiness about um, you know foreigners swanning off to exotic places and then writing about them. I think quite rightly that has become a mode that people have questions about. Um, so, you know, you've seen a resurgence in um, nature writing, particularly in, in Britain, mm-hmm. um, which, I, you know, is problematic in its own way because it does tend to uh, appeal, be written by and appeal to a very specific sort of middle class of middle class demographic um and you know it has it has political implications of its of its own but i think that that trend will continue as as borders harden and i think what i was thinking about this the other day and I, I i may be proved wrong about this but to me it does feel like this is going to be the end of of globalization in the way you know we saw over until probably 2016, I guess, uh, you know, a fairly consistent acceptance that f- open borders, free markets were, were you know, in and of themselves good things. Um, and, and obviously Trump and Brexit happened and, and that started to contract. Uh, and in, in Russia and China, obviously, you have um, leaders who are who are nationalistic in in tone, and I, I just I just suspect that this will be the final um, nail in in that particular coffin, um, and 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 you do then see a shift in the kinds of accounts you get. I mean, you know, people forget, but Afghanistan, which um, now is a place no one would uh, book a holiday to, I don't think, um, apart from Rory Stewart. Um, you know <laughs> that 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 was like the destination if you were a hippie traveler right right in in the, in the 70s you, you went to afghanistan and and obviously shifting political currents and, and borders harden and that changes our relationship with the world and and you know for me it will change the west's relationship with china again uh you know I, over the last 10 years as i've traveled around i've seen few, fewer and fewer westerners uh traveling in china um and that will obviously you know now be even more the case um and i would argue that at that point you know travel writing becomes all the more important um and and i mean maybe there's a positive effect as well in that um the increasing homogenization of the world you know and again speaking as somebody who spent a lot of time watching china change over the last 10 years um maybe that will now slow down a little bit Mm. um and and certainly that was that was a dispiriting aspect of traveling um in asia uh, over the last f- five or six years is you know it, it it had uh lost its specificity or it was losing it anyway um and perhaps perhaps all of this stops those forces acting on 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 uh, countries in, in quite such an homogenizing way um, maybe that's me just being overly optimistic i don't know we'll see Rolf Potts. 
Hey, Jeremy, this is Rolf Potts, um, author of Vagabonding and a few other books, most of them related to travel, and host of the Deviate podcast. It'll probably be a couple months before I really have enough perspective to speak about the future of travel writing. And really, when you think about it, there are many aspects to travel writing, not least of which is the separation between commercial travel writing and literary travel writing. There's other categories as well. Um, commercial travel writing is really going to be affected by the travel industry's breakdown and collapse of sorts because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I'm sure in time that will rebuild and commercial travel writing will rebuild accordingly. Um, what is probably more interesting and something that we can talk about now is what is going to happen to literary travel writing, which of course predates uh, commercial travel writing by quite a long time. And one interesting detail is that one of the golden ages of literary travel writing, if not the golden age of the 20th century, was the travel writing of the interwar period, uh, the British aspect of which was famously celebrated by Paul Fussell in his book Abroad. Um, and it was an era when, when mostly young, mostly male uh, British travel writers were traveling the world and writing about it in a very interesting and personal, while still repertorial, literary way. The reason I bring it up is that the interwar period was right after the uh, the pandemic of Spanish flu, of influenza, which was devastating, yet didn't keep people from traveling in the decade after it happened. So I suspect people will continue to travel in the decade after this happens. In what form that takes, I'm not sure, but which in, in whichever form it takes, I'm sure that the sensibility of the people who write those stories will certainly affect how that works. And maybe people will be writing literary stories in a more thoughtful way uh, post-COVID-19. I'm not sure. Anyway, it'll probably be at least 10 years before we'll really able to assess what comes of that. Uh, but I, I will be interested. Hopefully, I'll be a part of it. Hopefully, I'll get back out on the road and, and um, write some ambitious books myself. We'll have to see. Uh, but yeah, to sum up, it's, I think it's too soon to say or even speculate about what will happen to travel writing. But I'm optimistic for literary travel writing, not just in the way it would mirror what we saw in the post-war period uh, between World War I and World War II, but hopefully it will encompass even more diverse voices, not just from the English-speaking world, not just white dudes traveling the world, um, although they certainly had some interesting perspectives back then, but a multiplicity of people traveling the world in many directions and from many perspectives. That's my optimistic take on things. Uh, good luck, everyone, and keep on writing. Keep on traveling when we're able to travel again. Manisha Rajesh, how has the current state of affairs been impacting your professional life, your writing? Um, it's, I, I think, mainly in terms of having time to do anything, um, because I've got a, a, you know, my older daughter is almost three, and I have a ten-month-old baby. And from the moment they're both up at seven o'clock in the morning, that's my time taken until around seven o'clock in the evening. So, um, I mean, I don't even really get a chance to look at emails. I'm, I'm lucky if I can sort of respond to WhatsApp messages during the day, let alone sit down and start trying to pitch ideas or put features together. Um, but I've, I've managed to sort of put slots in in the evening. Um, and at weekends, I try and get a little bit of time and do swaps with my husband who will take them out for a couple of hours. But 
Yeah, I think it, it has definitely impacted my ability to do any kind of writing um, or even any reading. I've just I've had this novel, which is only 200 pages, which I've had on the go for probably about two or three months now. And any other time I'd have probably read it in about three hours. Um, but the other thing is being, you know, being a travel writer, um, what what can you do right now? There's mm-hmm. no one knows what's coming. No one knows how this is going to have a long term effect on the travel industry. Um, my personal feeling is that it's not going to impact things too badly because I think we've all been cooped up for so long. And I know I certainly have incredible cabin fever that I think one of the first things I'll be doing when this is done is is looking into where we can go away next. And I think I'm hoping that, you know, the, the industry and companies are going to be able to, you know, recoup that money. Um, and I don't doubt okay. that, you know, I suspect people will be a bit nervous initially about where they can go and where still safe and probably maybe avoid flying things. But but I think it's. I think it will pick up. I think, like anything, you start to do it and you find it's okay. Um, I'm glad you me- mentioned the the domestic situation. I've talked yeah. to several other people uh, for this episode, and you know they've all been men, and some of them have children and families. But you know, this uh, I, I think it's an important point to to touch upon is that everyone is now, most of us are now forced to work from home, which presents a certain set of difficulties and having a family to take care of and young children to take care of amplifies those kind of difficulties. I'm hearing quite mixed things as well from, um, from sort of fellow friends and parents, um, who have either got, you know, they've, they've got bosses who are understanding about the situation and appreciate that, you know, it's 2020 and both parents often work full time. Um, but there are also the employers who don't really understand that and who expect if there's a mother in the house that she's now full time nanny, cook, cleaner, you know, does the laundry, just looks mm. after the full time. And that's, that's incredibly frustrating for working mothers. I mean, fortunately for me, um, I am freelance. And so I don't have a boss breathing down my neck saying, you know, what's going on? Why, why are you so unproductive? But if I did, I'd, I mean, I'd, I have a huge amount of respect for women who've got children and are also, you know, doing quite full-time jobs at the same time. I don't know how they're doing it. Um, my work just has to take a bit of a backseat right now. Um, and I just have to try and, you know, find other ways to at least sit down and think about what my next book might, might be. Or I think the, the one upside for me is that because I, my book only came out last year in January, I'm still able to write a lot of things off the back of that. And having done all that research and 80 train journeys around the world, I've still got quite a lot of uh, fodder there mm-hmm. that I've written about um, in the last few months. So I can still sort of churn out articles here and there without having to actually go and do that travel again. So that's one one nice, nice. bit. Um, and it's good. I think travel editors are being quite, um, I mean, they have to be, be quite innovative about what they're going to fill their pages with. And I've seen a few papers doing you know, where would be my ideal journey if, you know, I, I wasn't doing this now. And, you know, um, you know, I'm dreaming back to the time I was last in whichever place. And one of the loveliest things I've seen, and, and I think now it is directly linked, is had a lot of messages on Instagram and on Twitter from new readers who've picked up my book. And, and I've realized it's just, it, it's because they can't go anywhere now. And they're turning back to travel literature to, to have that armchair wanderlust again, um, and when it first started, it was just a little dribble of people. And it's almost every day now. And mm-hmm. it's really lovely to see because travel writing is one of those, it is one of those fairly difficult things. And people are always wondering if there's a future for travel writing and especially for books. 
given that we can all travel and we can all go out and see things, um, or at least most people assume that you can. But but I think now it's it's amazing to see when people realise they don't have that privilege anymore of just being able to book a flight mm-hmm. and just leave in a week's time if you want to. Now people are understanding that that you can't. You still want to see the world. Um, and turning back to books is a, is a great way to be able to do it. And also, I guess it gives people an idea of what they can book in the future when, mm-hmm. when we travel again. I think uh, online book uh, retailers are uh, reporting that sales are robust uh, for great. for the books. So that's that's uh, a bit of positive news. So apart yeah. from um, kind of recycling, or perhaps a better word is looking back at some of your your other writing and finding yeah. out ways that you can kind of massage those into to new products. What else are you doing uh, professionally um, to hold you over until the storm passes? Um, well, I, I think I was, I was spending the last few weeks actually coming up with new ideas for my next book. Um, whether or not that's train travel, uh, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm definitely leaning towards it and probably towards night trains was actually mm. my idea. Um, and I think I probably will still go down that route because I think once all this is settled, I think people are going to be a lot more aware of being in contact with people and their social distancing. And I, I don't think that that's going to, I don't think we're going to go back to things being the way they used to be. I really don't think so. I think it's going to take a while for people to readjust to how we did things. Mm-hmm. And I think there is still going to be an element of people walking too close to each other and still being a bit fearful that what if, you know, we still pick it up at some point. And I think when you're traveling in airplanes or you're traveling in close proximity people, you're still going to have that sort of hanging over your head. Um, and I think, yeah, I think with trains, you can still sort of move around quite quickly. <laughs> um, and for me, certainly anyway, that's that's probably how I'm still going to be traveling. And I think also people are just aware in general of the effect that everything we've been doing has been having on the planet. And I think people are much more aware of climate change now and have finally taken these things seriously. But um, yeah, for me, in terms of work, um, yeah, it is. It's a difficult one. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of looking sideways at doing different editing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, even for the, the, I used to work at the Week magazine, and I still do shifts for them every so often. And of course, now because no one's in the office, uh, everybody's working remotely now. So I can sort of look through pieces in the evening and with my red pen, just sit down in front <laughs> of the TV and do things. But yeah, you you do have to be. You have to really think outside the box now, um, and try and figure out you know, how to, how to deal with this. In fact, I, I just wrote a piece recently, which was about independent bookshops, um, that are delivering. And it was very tough because I'm normally the kind of, uh, I can't bear the idea of doing a travel piece without actually going there and seeing everything and smelling it and touching it and looking around and talking to people. Um, but with, you know, I managed to get out to some of the bookshops in London, but by the time I was coming to finish my piece, they'd already put the lockdown in place. Um, and I had to call up everybody and I had to ask them about what books they had in stock and I couldn't look at them myself. And I had to look through pictures of their shops on Instagram to mm. see what the inside. And it, it was very, it's a weird way of having to do things. Um, but I think because we have got, you know, we've got Instagram, we've got Twitter, we've got so many different portals now online. I think that's the the one thing that we're just going to have to really tap into to, to keep the industry going and mm-hmm. to keep stuff alive. So how do you have any predictions on how the industry will go or if it will keep going? And by the industry, I mean kind of travel literature in general. 
Travel literature doesn't worry me actually. In terms of books, I mean, magazines and newspapers right now. I'm, I mean, I've seen that a lot of the Sunday Times and other papers like that have actually condensed their travel sections down, and they haven't even produced any in the last week or so. Um, but books doesn't worry me actually. I think I, I went to the um, the Stanford Dolman Travel Awards a, a mm-hmm. month ago, um, which has been going for the last few years here, and. I think there were sort of 56 books nominated across the seven categories. And it I was gobsmacked at the amount of books that, I mean, bear in mind, those were just the ones that had been shortlisted, um, that that many books are still being produced throughout the year. And the different types of things that people were writing about as well um, was fascinating. You know, one, one woman had written about, you know, riding horses in a, a famous race in Mongolia and Someone, another girl, has very recently written a book about living on a fishing trawler in Cornwall, mm. um, a town called Lamorna, which is, you know, her name is actually Lamorna Ash, and she went to investigate the origins of her name. Um, you know, all these things are still deemed travel writing, and I often think you don't even really have to go very far afield to be able to produce this kind of literature for people. Um, another incredible book that I wanted to mention was um, a book called No Friend But the Mountains by Behrouz Bouchani who was a prisoner um, on Manus Island and actually wrote his book through text messages from being in prison. Wow. Um, also now, you know, it, it is travel literature because he, you know, he wrote it from within this prison to explain to everybody what's happening. It's firsthand on the ground reportage, I guess. And, you know, there's so many refugee stories now, which are, you know, travel by default rather than travel by choice. So I think, I think travel literature is, is always going to survive. I think that's always going to be there. I just think it's going to be very different from the kind of travel that we're used to. Well, let's hope it keeps on going. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back on. And uh, we, we haven't spoken since the, the awards and congratulations on the nomination. That's uh, exciting. Much. Yes, it is. It's been, it's been lovely. It's been great. Um, and thank you for having me back. I, I love this podcast. Our final guest is the author of On the Plain of Snakes and scores of other travel books and novels, Paul Theroux. Paul responded to my questions via email, which I'll read here and also post on the episode show notes. Question 1. Commercial travel writing is in large dependent upon the travel industry, but with travel literature, if we could make such a distinction, the relationship is less direct. Do you have any insights into how commercial travel writing and travel literature might change as a result of the corona crisis, if at all? The commercial travel writing you mention is market-driven, intending to sell vacations, hotel rooms, restaurant meals, and is nearly always upbeat. I don't disparage it, because it informs vacationers who have limited time to travel and services the travel industry. But travel literature, or, let's say, The literature of wandering is quite different, low-budget, somewhat open-ended, random, and glorifying and having a bad time full of life lessons. Your question is whether either of the two will change, and the simple answer is no, probably no change at all. Because travel writing as a designation is maddening and encompasses autobiography, mythomania, memoir, and topographical observation, as well as adventures exotic romances, and ordeals. Of all of these, I prefer to read about The Ordeal. By the way, Hawaii usually gets 10 million visitors a year, and yesterday, 120 visitors arrived.
I have never seen Hawaii so empty. Question two. What would you tell the aspiring travel writer whose plans are suddenly, if temporarily, grounded? Aspiring travel writers, aspiring writers of all kinds, need to be passionate readers, not of the new, trend-spotting stuff, but of the great novels and travel books. Ideally, the aspiring writer reads a biography of, say, Joseph Conrad or Jack London or Rebecca West, all three of whom were travelers, and then reads eight or ten books by Conrad or London or West. It so happens I have done this with pleasure. Question three. How are you passing the time in self-isolation? I've spent my entire writing life, 60 or so years, in self-isolation, doing exactly what I'm doing now, reading, writing, and making meals with my wife. Also bike riding. No swimming, though. I'm in Hawaii. The beaches are closed. Question four. In what books are you currently finding solace, if any? I'm reading a biography of H.G. Wells and intend to read or reread six or eight of his novels. I recommend your listeners to get a hold of my anthology, The Tao of Travel, and look at two sections. Staying at Home, books by people who loved isolation, and Walking, books by people who loved hiking and who believed the words Solvitur Ambulando. It is solved by walking. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash travel writing world. Thanks for your support.